Ah, good morning, Southfield. It's good to see you. I'm glad that even knowing that um, I'd be up here, that there are still butts in seats. Uh, I was I was worried that uh, having the announcement that I was preaching one more time, that uh, a lot of people would uh, choose to use this as their vacation week. So again, thank you for joining us. Um, and we are going to jump right into our our stuff for the morning. Um, we have a, an afternoon fun plan for Revive, so all of our high schoolers, those entering into high school in the fall, and up through those who are leaving for college um, here in just a few weeks are able to come over to the Coldwaters this afternoon over in Shorewood. They have a pool, and they have a massive catering order for tacos. So we're going to have a taco bar, um, so you don't need to worry about picking up lunch unless you hate tacos, which in that case, I'd wonder about your mental state. Um, so, so if you haven't, if you don't know the address, I sent it out on the Remind yesterday. If you have not signed up for Remind, if you have a high schooler or you are a high schooler and you would like those updates, feel free to sign up. If you need help doing that, you can get some help at the Info Hub after the service today, or you can come and talk to me. I'll gladly share that with you so that you can get signed up, get all those updates and, and know everything. Uh, but we are going to be going there right after um, second service. So we'll get over there between 12 and 12.15. 12 uh, Julia's told me that the food is supposed to arrive at 12, at 12.15, 12 so I'll be there at 12.14, making sure that I'm first in line to devour as many tacos as humanly possible before jumping into their pool and trying to stay afloat. Okay, uh, so again, we really hope that all of you uh, come out, because it should be a nice, sweaty, gross afternoon uh, to be in a pool. Granted, still not my own, uh, but, but this one's a lot better. So it'll be, it'll be good to hang out together for the afternoon. Refuge has one more summer meeting before we uh, take a two-week break. So this Wednesday from 6.30 to 8.30, we will be meeting, and I have been assured that we are doing a Just Dance competition, just like we did back at Green Lake. Robert's going to be leading the charge there, so I've told him as soon as he shows up, we're starting. So you want to make sure to be there on time on Wednesday so we can have a lot of fun together. Uh, but after this week, so after Revive today and Refuge this Wednesday, we're going to take a two-week break, so no Refuge or Revive for the next two Sundays or Wednesdays because our leaders are going to go on a, a one-day retreat, kind of get settled uh, and prepared for the fall, and so we can all be on the same page and, and get ready for everything that we have planned in, um, in the fall season. So we'll come back, I think it's August 15th and 18th. If that's wrong, I apologize. I really should have had my Google Calendar right here, but I believe those are accurate days. Um, and we'll come back, so right after uh, the start of the school year, which is approaching far too rapidly. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so that's, that's everything in student life. We have uh, all, all kinds of stuff still going on in the life of Southfield, so make sure that, that you are going to that website, checking out updates. Make sure you sign up for, uh, for our newsletter that we send out every week. Um, we've been sending out the verses and the Spotify playlist with the songs that we sing on Sunday morning as that opportunity to prepare your heart, prepare your mind, prepare your soul for what's coming on Sunday mornings. So make sure uh, to get signed up for that. You can also venture over to the App Store or the Android Store. I don't know what the Androiders use. Uh, but you can download the Church Center app, and after you're in there, you can search for Southfield Church, find us, and that's what we use for, for everything in terms of signing up for small groups. If you find that to be easier, you can do that. Um, in terms of being able to find the Bible reading, knowing times, all this uh, is available to you in the Church Center app. And the really, really nice thing that I like about the Church Center app is being able to give through the app because I'm a millennial and paying on your phone is the best thing ever. Um, granted, I was a curmudgeon. It was actually my mom, the least technologically advanced person on planet Earth. Uh, she spends more time on a computer than anyone I know, and she still has the least knowledge of how to use that computer. And she was the one who said, Brian, stop writing checks, stop paying for checks, and actually just do this online. So I jumped in, and now it, it's a breeze. It is nice and easy. Uh, the transfer goes through very quickly. And uh, so you can do that. You can give online through the app, through the website. Or if you are still in that, that period of wanting to actually give a physical donation, we have a black box on the back wall. As you leave this morning, you can drop your offering off there. And as always, we really, really appreciate all of your support. Because that offering, first, I, I do want to say, 
viewing offering as an obligation can be taxing sometimes, but when we see it as an opportunity to give to God, to give back what is his, uh, it, it just changes the heart, it changes the mind, it changes the spirit of that opportunity. It's, it's a really cool thing to be able to do. And, and for those of us who aren't able to travel the world and go spread the gospel, we're able to support that mission through our giving. We, we give to a lot of different organizations that impact people literally around the globe, um, whether it be people from our own church or um, centers like uh, Green Lake that bring people from all over the world to, to learn and hear about the, the good news of Jesus. So, uh, again, thank you for partnering with us in that and, and for your continued support through, um, through the year. Today, we are going to continue our series on bean encounters. And yes, if you missed last week, you're going to want to make sure, uh, don't put your brain on pause, but you're going to want to make sure to go back and watch last week. Um, not, that is not a, a haughty thing saying, well, you should go back and listen to me. No, um, you're, but you, you're going to miss a huge chunk of, of what this series is all about. Short little two-week series while my dad is down in Texas with my brother, because apparently it's not hot enough for him here. He had to go to Texas and help my brother um, get situated with some new furniture and things like that. Um, but I'm talking about bean encounters. And no, not the coffee slash panini shop that once existed in Shanahan Manuka. We are talking about an um, actual coffee bean encounters. And we didn't get there last week. Last week, we started by looking at a little book, um, not biblical by any stretch, uh, but it has some biblical principles, uh, called The Coffee Bean. This coffee bean is written by a man named Damon West. And just a brief recap, I'm not going to give the whole spiel because most of you have heard it already, um, but Damon West was a gifted athlete, a talented um, investment guy. He worked on Congressional Hill. He had it all going for him in terms of the American dream. And one day it all came crashing down when he was arrested for, starting, or for, um, for finally being caught on charges of burglary, um, because he had set up a little burglary ring in Dallas, in, in the north, on the north side of Dallas, uh, because his, um, his feelings of invincibility and the, everything that he had going for him in life led him down a path where he had gotten into cocaine and then uh, methamphetamines, and he had actually started a burglary ring. He was the one in charge of saying, yes, we're going to rob this place at this time and that place at that time so that we can sell these things that we've stolen to support our habits. He received a 65-year uh, prison sentence, which for someone in their 30s is a life sentence. And as he was on his way to prison, he met a man named Mr. Jackson. Mr. Jackson had been in and out of the prison system his whole life, and so Damon West, the writer of this book, said, Mr. Jackson, what, what should I expect in prison? How am I going to survive? How am I going to get through this? And Mr. Jackson told him, you got to think of prison as a pot of boiling water. And we're going to put three things in there. We're going to put in a carrot, we're going to put in an egg, and we're going to put in a coffee bean. And we're going to see what happens to those three things. Last week, we looked at the carrot and the egg. Because when you take a pot of boiling water and you place a hard carrot into it, over time, the environmental pressures, the heat and the pressure, turn that carrot soft. Similarly, when you put an egg into a pot of boiling water, it goes from having a soft, runny, yolky center to becoming a hard-boiled egg. Both of these, according to Mr. Jackson, were not what Damon West needed to be in terms of wanting to survive and succeed and eventually get out of prison. No, he wanted, uh, he told Damon West to be the coffee bean. He wanted him to be something that isn't changed by its environment, but rather the opposite. It changes the environment, and we have to call the environment something completely different uh, after it's been exposed to that environmental pressure. So last week you looked at the biblical principles behind all this. The Christian carrot is someone who, is, who starts the race strong. They come into that relationship with God and they're on fire. They're firm. They're, they are vibrant. They want to share the word with everyone. But then a bad experience or a bad relationship, a sinful past, the scars from a sinful past, cause that carrot to change. They cause that carrot to go from the firm foundational uh, believer into someone who is scared, soft, feels unworthy of spreading the good news of the gospel. Similarly, we looked at the Christian egg. 
The Christian egg starts with that softened heart, knowing that it, apart from God, we can, do, we can do and be nothing. So it starts with that soft, runny, yolky center, and we want to spread the word everywhere. We want to, to go all over the place telling everyone about the good news, but then something similar to the carrot happens, where the environmental pressures, whether that's something that a promotion that isn't received at work, or an expectation that was laid out that doesn't come true, or some, something bad comes up in the Christian egg's life where they begin to harden. Instead of being the runny yoke and wanting to spread the gospel everywhere, the egg instead internalizes and hardens and keeps to themselves and becomes something completely different as a result of the environmental pressures that have been placed on the egg. Today, we're going to shift gears. We're finally, we're getting to the Christian coffee bean. And I want to start with the statement. What we believe drives everything that we do. What we believe drives everything that we do. When we believe that our team is the best, we sport their colors, whether it be Cubs, Cardinals, White Sox, Bears, Bulls, Blackhawks, whatever. When we have a favorite team, we rock their colors because we believe in them. Or, like our Illini, uh, we, we just kind of hope that one day they'll win something. Um, but we believe in our teams, so we show our pride in our teams. Similarly, when we believe that a particular place has the best carne asada or the best al pastor, we will go out of our way to make sure that we are getting our food from that place. This happened to me this week. I know of a place uh, that isn't a secret, uh, but over in Tinley Park that has the best, absolute best, Al Pastor burritos. They put French fries in it. Oh, it's unbelievable. They have the best Al Pastor burritos on planet Earth, in my opinion. I believe in the quality of their burrito. I've had them probably 30 times now, and every single time, the consistency, the t- everything about it, it is wonderful. So I will go out of my way passing Taco Bell after Taco Bell and other small Mexican food joints along the way to make sure that I'm getting what I believe in, the product that I believe is the best. It influences what I do. It influences the decisions, the timing, the planning, everything about that event. Fishing is similar to this as well. See, so you have two different kinds of fishermen. I mean, you could probably expand that, but for today, we're going to look at two different kinds of fishermen. There's the fisherman that baits the hook, with a lure or with live bait, whatever, and will begin fishing and will not stop using that lure or that live bait until something is caught. It could be four or five hours of using the same bait over and over and over again, but that fisherman believes that that MEPS lure is going to catch that largemouth bass no matter how long they have to sit and, and wait, how many casts they have to make until they catch that fish. That's the kind of fisherman I am. I believe in my lures, and I believe in my decisions. When I, put that on the, when I put the bait on the hook, I'm throwing it out there until I catch something. But then you have fishermen like my friend Matt. See, my friend Matt is the complete opposite. He might get three casts in with a particular lure before he says, well, this thing's junk, and he takes it off and switches it out for live bait. And then when the live bait isn't catching anything, he switches back to another lure. Oh, maybe it was just the color. I've got to change the color. Oh, nope, I've got to change the size. Well, it's kind of muddy today, so we're going to change the fisherman that believes in constant change in order to catch the fish is going to keep changing the lures until they finally catch something. What we believe impacts everything and drives everything that we do. In life, our habits and our character can also be traced to our fundamental beliefs. So, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, it's important for us to first Lay out what our fundamental beliefs are. So before we even get to the coffee bean today, I'm going to lay out five key core beliefs that we have as Christians according to the Bible. First, as Christians, we believe that there is a God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Four words in, we have established there is a God. And before the end of the first sentence, we have established that he is all-powerful. He is the creator of everything. You read throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1, and we learn all the things that he did make. That includes everything out there that we can see, everybody in here that we can see, and everything that we can't see. God is 
alive and well. So first, we believe that there is a God. Second, we believe that God is perfect and that unfortunately, we are not. You see, just two chapters later, in Genesis chapter 3, we learn about God's first human creations, Adam and Eve, and how they fell for the lie of Satan, and they fell into sin by doing something that God told them not to do. See, God said, here's all the things that you can do. They lived in perfect harmony and perfect unity with God until they did the one thing that God said, don't do that. That sin entered in. That broke the relationship between God and his people. But God didn't give up there. He didn't say, just because you're perfect, um, you're out of my picture, you're out of my plan. No, but there is a cost to sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through what? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin has a cost. It's not, we do not just enter back into the, the grace and will of God freely before a co- that cost is paid. Luckily for us, we don't have to pay that cost. That cost has been paid for us. Our fourth core belief is that God paid the cost of our sin with his son, his one and only son, Jesus. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him, through Jesus. So we believe that God paid the cost that we could never pay. No matter how hard we try to be perfect, no matter how many kind and good deeds, no matter how much we donate, no matter how much we try to be everything that we need to be, we can't. Only the cost that was paid by Jesus is what puts us back into the good grace of God. Jesus is the only way. And we see that all throughout the Bible Um, but two specific spots are in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Me being Jesus, not Brian. And then Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Peter had just come off of healing a crippled man, and the crowd that watched this was like, whoa, uh, that's like a Jesus thing. What, What are you doing doing this? Like that, we don't, we don't even, should we put them in prison? Should we, uh, are, are you blasphemers? Like, what, what's going on here? And so Peter, right away, wants to establish, oh no, this is not Peter. This is not Peter's power. This was not done by the will of Peter. This was done because Jesus created a way. He says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene the man whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Straightforward. The Bible lays it out perfectly. If you crack that book and you begin to read it and understand its principles, these five core beliefs are something that, as Christians, are fundamental to who we are. So, as a believer, it means that you are called to be a follower, and a call to follow is always a call to action. No one says, follow me, and then turns into a limp noodle and falls to the ground. I've learned from my experiences at camp falling on the stage that I shouldn't do that. Uh, so that's, I'm just I'm kind of giving you a half, half-hearted limp noodle there, okay? But when you call someone to follow you, be like you, act like you, walk like you, talk like you, you're asking them to do something. Jesus does the same for us. He says, if you believe in me, then you will be my follower. He's calling us to action. And if what we believe truly drives everything that we do, then something different should be happening in our lives compared to the lives of everyone around us who is not a believer. The greatest news that anyone can share is the good news of who Jesus is, period. In a world that's covered by darkness, Jesus calls his people, he calls us to action to be the light 
in the darkness. If we head over to Matthew chapter 28, we see exactly what Jesus wants us to do. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've reached the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's already spent his three years teaching and preaching and, and discipling. He's, been, he's died, he's been resurrected, and now he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And his final, his final words to his disciples, to his closest friends, to the people that he is speaking to last on earth before his second coming, he says this, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If you have faith in Jesus, his call to action for you is to be a coffee bean and to have bean encounters. His, he desires for you to go and tell other people about him. Oh, but some people don't like coffee. I don't want to be a coffee bean. People, people won't like the taste. They, they don't want to hear from me or I, I'm not worthy enough. Or it's summer and, and hot drinks like coffee should be left for the fall when pumpkin spice lattes re-enter the picture. No. Stop making excuses and start making coffee. In this passage, we see several things are made plain and clear for believers. Among those is Jesus sending out his disciples among the world to proclaim that he, Jesus, is the one true king. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. And he is the ruler over the entire world. Don't you find it amazing that we get to be a part of that? Here, Jesus is proclaiming his power and he says, oh yeah, I am all powerful, but you, yes, you, believer, all of you have a role to play. Follow me. As followers of Jesus, we're given the same task to go and tell those people all over the world, of the wonderful, life-changing, life-altering news of Jesus. And when we experience new life in Jesus, when we understand what it means to come alive in our faith and in our focus, we'll finally be able to see what our function is. Our function, or our task, or our mission, or responsibility, or whatever word you want to use, is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them to observe all of Jesus' rules, all the things that he has commanded, which means that our call to action is to be a coffee bean. We need to change the environment completely. This is what we've been commissioned to do. This is what Christian coffee beans should have a passion and a desire to do. So how do we do that? Well, first, we've got to keep the reminder in our brain, like at the forefront right here. We should just like post it or tattoo it to our forehead, okay? God is in control. He's got this. This is his mission, his plan, and you are playing a part. If we're breaking down this passage that we looked at in Matthew chapter 28, and we want to understand what it looks like to walk in obedience and follow God in accordance with the Great Commission, then an understanding of verse 18 is incredibly important because this verse is the basis by which everything else follows. So let's look at it. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. John MacArthur puts it this way. The word authority denotes permission. It denotes privilege. It denotes power. It denotes rule, control, and influence. When someone has authority, they have responsibility beyond the norm. They're able to determine things, to decide things, to render judgments, and to wield certain rights and privileges. This is precisely who Jesus is and the type of power that he possesses. He is Lord over all. He has power over all creation. 
Colossians 1, 15 to 17 lays this out. It describes his power and authority. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as the thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. In short, Jesus reigns supreme. By his words, the very essence of life and being came into existence, and by his power, everything is sustained. He has authority over space. He has power over time. He has the authority to forgive sins, to heal. He has power over death and authority over nature and everything that we can see and we can't. Our faith hinges on this power because our faith hinges on a God that knows every nook and cranny of the thing that he created. Our faith rests in a God who is the highest in degree and highest in rank and quality. A God who is ultimate and supreme, lacking and needing nothing. He is the ultimate power. He is the ultimate glory. There is no one stronger, no one mightier, no one more loving, no one more caring, no one more kind, no one more compassionate, and no one more giving than Jesus Christ and the one and only Son of God. Now, all of this is great news. I know I'm saying it with a serious tone, but this is fantastic news. Why? Because it allows us to embrace the idea of letting go and letting God take over. The idea of not being in charge is scary, particularly when it comes to areas of our lives that are unknown or not yet known. When we realize that there is no area of our lives known, or, I'm sorry, unknown by God, it gives us license to turn our lives over to him. He is in control. We are his children, and he is there to protect us through it all. It changes the game completely. Matthew 6, 25 to 34 says this, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work to make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. So why do you have so little faith? Don't worry about these things. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously. And then he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Again, there's confirmation in that. It will bring more worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Normally, I do all of the driving. Everywhere that Riley and I go, I do all the driving, in part because I have this nasty car sickness thing. I can be in the backseat of a car for less than 10 minutes, and my head starts spinning, and I'm like, all right, we got to pull over because now I'm about to throw up. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is I like being in control. I like knowing exactly when, when we're going to stop. I like knowing where we're going. I like knowing that, you know what, if we have a 13-hour drive, I'm going to try and get there in 11 and a half, and we're not stopping unless we need gas, okay? So I like having that control. I very seldomly turn over control to my wife. And that's not, like, I'm not trying to be, like, all macho, like, oh, no, right, I can't drive the car. No, for me, for me, I, I like having that. So I usually only turn it over to Riley when I'm just completely 
exhausted, when all of my energy is wasted, and we're in danger. That's when I'm like, okay, Riley, like right now, I'm pulling over to the shoulder, and we're doing a Chinese fire drill, you're driving, okay? Um, and the nice thing about that is I'm usually so tired that I can go right to sleep. So I can rest assured that Riley, being a very smart person that she is, can follow the GPS just like I did. And she can go, and I can relinquish control. There's comfort for me in that. But there's another piece. When I wake up, I don't have to think. And that's really nice. When we went to North Carolina for my sister-in-law's wedding, we drove through the night. And I love driving through the night in part because it's brain-dead driving. Like, there are less people on the road, less construction to deal with, uh, unless you're on I-80, of course. Uh, but you, you, get to, you get to spend some time just turning your brain off, following the striped lines, and, and just listening to a podcast with GPS on telling me exactly where to go. I love that, okay? There, got, there came a point in this drive that I, I was done. I could not keep my eyes open, and like when I'm waking Riley up with the rumble strips, it's time to turn over the wheel. So she took over, and, and I went right to sleep. I slept for a, a solid hour and a half before even opening my eyes, and at that point, when I finally did open my eyes, sun, the sun is starting to rise. We were in West Virginia, and when Brian is in control, and when Brian is driving, Brian's only focus is on the road. Now, 16-year-olds, that's a good thing, okay? Keep your focus on the road, but I often completely miss everything that's around us, because I'll look off to the side and say, oh, yeah, that's nice scenery, whatever, and then just get right back to what I'm doing. When I woke up in West Virginia, we were driving through the mountains. And remember, I had just driven through total darkness, blackness. I couldn't see anything. And if I had stayed in control of the car, if I had kept driving, we probably wouldn't be here today. But if, we, if I had made it through, I would have been so exhausted that I, from controlling that car that I had to keep my eyes straight forward, and I would have missed all the beauty that God made in the weird and wild state of West Virginia. I felt like a little kid. Every turn that we took, I'm like, wow, Riley, look at that. Wow, Riley, look at that. Wow, Riley, look at that. She's like, I know. Okay? But relinquishing control allows us to see all that God has done, can do, and will do. That is essential in our walk as believers. When Jesus is in control and he is directing our lives, we don't not only get to see the wonders and the beauty of life, we get to experience them as well. Further, when Jesus is in control and has a stronghold and a shield to rely on, when things get messy, when things get dark, when they get ugly, we can breathe a sigh of relief that someone else is driving the car or steering the ship or whatever metaphor you want to use. Jesus' authority compels us to go and it also can give us the confidence to go. When we understand the authority of Jesus, it allows us to adequately and genuinely follow through with the next step. What's the next step? Actually telling people about Jesus. Make no mistake, the Great Commission tells us immediately after Jesus tells, about, tells us about his authority that we are to do something. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The natural response with good news is to share it. When you get the job, when you make the team, you share it. When something positive happens, you share it. When you have a great burrito, you share it. When you have a baby, you share it. And 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 you share it. To the point of exhaustion. When good things happen, when good news is readily available, you share it. So, isn't the gospel the greatest news of all? We should be sharing it. We're called to share it. While technically given to the disciples, it's clear that this text applies to anyone and everyone who bears the name of Christ. This commission has been given to you and to me. We can't pick and choose to whom the gospel is preached 
Because the, gospel, or the commission calls us to go. We're to make disciples of all people, not just the people who root for the same teams or speak the same language or look the way we do or talk the way we do or tweet the way we do, whatever. It doesn't matter. When Jesus makes us alive, he tells us to go and tell others about him. Part of going means that you're going to step out of your comfort zone. It means that you're going to go places, maybe not physical places, but it could be emotional places, it could be spiritual places that are dirty, ugly, tiring, and uncomfortable. But that's what a disciple does. It goes. The disciple does all they can to make other disciples, even if that means that we face uncomfortable situations. Every time that I go to Wrigley Field, I'm going to be wearing my Cardinals gear trying to convert as many people as I can. Why do so many Americans have no shame, so many Christians have no shame doing something like that But then when it comes to putting on the jersey of God at the workplace, we're like, oh no, hang on, I'm going to put this in my locker real quick, or I'm going to put it in my desk. People can't see, like they just have to see the business person me, or they have to see the teacher me, or they have to see the secretary me. They can't see the God part of me. It's not what we're called to do, because Jesus didn't die for our comfort. He died for our souls. Jesus' own words in Matthew 16, he says to his disciples, if any of you wants to to be my follower, You must give up your own way, take up your cross, follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Going means being available and willing. We must, must be open to the fact that life has interruptions. Sometimes those interruptions are opportunities for the gospel to be proclaimed and the name of Jesus to be glorified. Going also means that the word of God needs to be taught. We're to speak the word, show the word, live the word. First, you must know the word. This is of extreme importance. Romans 10, 14. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? All this is done to accomplish the goal and fulfill the call to make disciples of all nations. This is the primary function of a Christian, people. This is one thing that we cannot afford to neglect. Making disciples doesn't end when people receive and accept the gospel either. It's a constantly ongoing process known as sanctification. Teaching the word and learning from the word and living the word never stops. Baptism plays a significant role in this as well as we learn from the Great Commission. As we make disciples, it's our job to proclaim the full counsel of God, and baptism plays an integral part in the Christian making a public declaration of their faith. They're putting on the jersey, and they're walking into hostile enemy territory, and they're saying, I'm cool with it because I live for Jesus now. Once someone is baptized, though, we must continue to share our lives with those people. We must continue to grow the family of faith. That sharing can be something as simple as opening a listening ear, being a shoulder to, uh, to rest on, lending a helping hand, any simple gesture you can think of, as long as it's genuine and full of Christ-like love. Acts 2.44-47 gives us a great illustration of what this looks like. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared meals with great joy. Joy is a choice. Joy and happiness are not the same. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of his people. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It does not say each day Peter added to the fellowship those who were being saved. It did not say each day Paul, Brian, John, Bob, Stephanie, Rachel did not say that. It says the Lord added to their fellowship daily those who were being saved through the work of the disciple. All of this came directly after Jesus' last words in Acts 1.8 where he says that you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He's telling his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, I'm going away for a while. You are going to receive the Holy Spirit 
and you are going to spread the word to the ends of the earth. Those first believers could have quit right there. They could have been the carrot, like, yeah, I'm ready to go. Or they could have been the egg, like, oh, man, I'm just so passionate about this. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then they hear that commission, and they're like, oh, <laughs> nope, can't do that. I don't even, I don't know where I'm going. Like, I've, I've heard of Greece, but I don't know where Greece is. Or there are going to be people who, who hear me, and, and I, I'm not such a great public speaker, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I, like, I, stop making excuses. Start making coffee. Romans 12, 14 to 17. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who, are, who weep. Live in harmony with each other. And don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think that you know it all. What this is saying is, believer, don't be a carrot when you're put into the pot of boiling water that is the world. Believer, don't be an egg. Do not harden because of your experiences. Your faith, your belief is something completely different. Be a coffee bean. Don't whine when you're persecuted. Did someone say or do something offensive to you? Don't let your feelings ruin your day or ruin someone else's. Be happy with people. Be sad with people. Don't act like you're better than everyone because you're not. Simple, right? The gospel, or this is the gospel community at its greatest. And this is how we should be extending the gospel to those around us by living with non believers, working with non believers, teaching, sharing with non believers, because that's how we make and mold disciples. But we have to be extremely cautious, very careful to remain in the world and not of it. We cannot use this call to live in the world as license to live of the world. How can we do that? We can remember that Jesus is always with us. When we believe in the authority of Jesus and understand his command to go and teach, verse 20 provides us with the confidence that he's going to be with us. And be sure of this, I, Jesus, the Son of God, am with you always, even to the end of the age. We may reach the end of the age, you may just reach the end of yours. But Jesus is with you always. Always. He is never gone. The mission will get tough. It will get difficult. But he's with us through it all. And there's confidence and security in knowing that. When Jesus makes us alive, we're called to trust him. He then guides and leads us to tell others about him. Knowing he's in control frees us up to share the greatest news that can never be told. So, I want to leave you with a very delicately titled section. I really wrote this, uh, this, or titled this section for me because I'm a dummy. It's called Being Coffee Bean for Dummies, okay? Great book. Um, I'm thinking about writing it. That's not true. But um, Being a Coffee Bean for Dummies. I need stuff to be simplified. And in The Coffee Bean by Damon West, he actually lays these principles out for just the person who's trying to live more positively, to make a, a coffee bean impact even without faith in God. He says you need to stay in shape. A non-believer can acknowledge you are what you eat, spiritually, mentally, physically. Guys, we need to stay in shape. How do we do that? How do we stay in shape spiritually? By knowing what we're following by believing in what we're reading. But you can't believe in what you're reading if you're not reading. You cannot believe in the power of prayer if you don't pray. You cannot believe in the power of God if you wait for experiential faith to take over. No. Your faith isn't all about experiences. Your faith is something completely different. If you're staying in shape mentally, it means that you're not allowing Satan to take over. The Bible acknowledges he is alive. He is well. He will try and trip you up. He will try and set you in his snare. It's up to us. It's up to us to rely on God and remain strong mentally. And physically, we should be doing the best to protect the temple that God has given us. It can be very easy for us to say, well, I'm supposed to be in the world with the people, making disciples. But then if you start looking 
like what the world is doing through what you drink or how much you drink or what you do, what you partake in, that's where that physical damage can ruin a witness and, in fact, drive people away from God rather than creating disciples. Second, you are what, or you control what you think, what you say, what you feel, and what you do, period. You are in control. Yeah, sometimes it's real hard. Sometimes the emotions get the best of me and I respond really poorly to my, to my wife. Or I'm very short with my parents. Or with my friends, I, I, I hide behind fake appearances. But you know what? I am in control of that. I am the one that can make the difference. But I don't need to make a difference if I don't believe in God. My goal is to make disciples of all nations. My goal as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, is to do, to take action, to make people see the power of Jesus and to show them what a Christian looks like. I need to be in control of my thoughts, my words, my feelings, and my actions. Finally, your body language is what people see before you say anything. This doesn't mean that we're to walk around with Bible in hand, smiling and skipping and fly, you know, releasing butterflies everywhere. But it does mean that if you truly believe that the gospel message is the most important message for the world to hear, you need to be ready to engage. You need to be ready to go at all times. The Bible tells us always be prepared with an answer. People aren't going to ask questions if your eyes are constantly downcast. If your thoughts or your feelings or your emotions have taken such a grasp of you that you have turned your attention away from God onto yourself and you're ignoring the nations that God is calling you to make disciples of, you're missing the point. It doesn't say be, the Bible does not say be fake, but the Bible does encourage us to live as Jesus did. Was Jesus' life easy? No. He lived in the Middle East. Okay? He was persecuted. He was condemned. He was killed. And yet through it all, he knew that he had a mission to accomplish, and he kept his eyes, his focus, everything, fully attentive to that mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you that not only is your word true, but it is literally the, the only capital T truth. Your word that you've given us in the Bible is the only truth that stands the complete test of time. We're so thankful that, that as the things of the world fade, as all the money and the things and the relationships and as everything else fades away, your truth stands still. Your word stands strong. Your word stands forever. So Father, we ask as believers that you would send your spirit to help us be coffee beans. Let us rise to the challenge that you've laid before us and not be impacted like our environment, like the carrot or the egg, but instead change the environment completely for you. And we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We're going to switch gears to communion. And for this, we're going to watch a video. Uh, it's a song written and performed by an artist named Micah Tyler. It's not a new song. It's almost five years old now. Um, but he actually, in this music video, intros. He's got like a minute or so introduction to this song. And he shares some real experiences that he's going through in his life. Three things that would give him every excuse in the book if he didn't have faith in God or if he didn't truly live out the faith that he has as a Christian, he'd turn soft like the carrot or hard like the egg. He, he talks about really heavy, tough, difficult things. But then he says this, and I'm, I'm going to read the chorus for you because I don't want you to miss it. He says, I want to be different. I want to be changed. Until all of me is gone, and all that remains is a fire so bright 
the whole world can see that there's something different. So come and be different in me. I'm going to let him share his message before the song. And what I'd encourage you to do is just listen. For that first minute, listen to his story. And then as the song begins, you can move to communion. We have tables at the back, at the front. We have gluten-free here on the stage and at the back door. And I would encourage you really to listen. Hear the message of this song. Hear what he's really saying in this. Because it would be very easy for him to say, God, I, I need my circumstances to change. This environment's got to go. And yet, instead, his prayer is to be the coffee bean. Bob, can you put that last slide back up one more time? Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to what? Those around me. Do you believe what you just sang? Because I think far too often we fall for the experience of church and the experience of following God. And yeah, wow, I feel like energized and, and this was a nice start to my Sunday before I go back to the boiling pot and allow the carrot to soften or the egg to harden. If you believe what you just sang, and you believe that God is almighty, that he is in control, that he does reign supreme, then you know that because you've actually gotten into this. It means that you've actually spoken to him. If you're not there yet, the time is now. There is an urgency to what we are doing and I would encourage you to dive in. Don't be the carrot. Don't be the egg, allowing the environment to change who you are and what you do. Be the coffee bean. Change the world, not for you, but for God. Go be the coffee bean.